Well, good morning, saints. My name is uh, Paul Abdallah. I'm one of the elders here at Stafford Baptist Church. What a joy it is to gather with you this morning to worship our God together, to sing and to hear from his word this morning. Well, today we're going to be taking a one-week break from our normal work of consecutive expository preaching, where we pick a, a book and we just work through it verse by verse or section by section. If you remember, last week we concluded uh, a large section of Genesis, Abraham's life, and next week we'll begin uh, picking back up in Matthew at chapter 11. And so we had one week here, uh, and so we're going to take that week to consider uh, a topical sermon Uh, Particularly the topic of evangelism, as hopefully you've picked up through the the beginning of our service. But because we believe, as the Reformers did in sola scriptura, that is the belief that Scripture alone is the authority for our life and practice, our consideration of evangelism uh, will come from the Bible, and particularly the book of Jonah. So if you have a Bible, please open there with me to the book of Jonah. If you're using one of the the black pew Bibles there in the pew in front of you, you can find Jonah on page 774. It's in the Old Testament, immediately following the short book of Obadiah and right before Micah, in the middle of what's commonly known as the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And as you're opening there, let me give you just a couple of introductory remarks. Uh, The title of this sermon, which is Hope for Lousy Evangelists, did not come from me. And so you you might be able to look it up online and you'll find totally different sermons from different churches. Uh, Our sermon is going to be much different, but the title was just too good to pass up. So sometimes other people are more creative than you and you uh, can can, uh, benefit from their creativity. And then secondly, I wanted to uh, just make note of this little book. It's a green book called What If I'm Discouraged in My Evangelism uh, by Isaac Adams. Uh, I was reading this book earlier this year, uh, and it's what stirred my heart uh, to want to uh, bring what ultimately turned into this sermon. So I would, uh, I would encourage you, we have some copies available on the book wall in the back. Uh, grab one, and maybe grab a friend and read it together with them. It's short, it's under 50 pages. Uh, it's a very helpful read, and, and hopefully will help expound on some of the things we're going to consider this morning. Well, we'll start this morning with a a scripture reading from Jonah 3. So if you're in the book of Jonah, look for chapter 3. Here at this point in in Jonah's story, he's already been called to go to Nineveh once. And he has not heeded that call. Instead, he he turns and seeks to go to Tarshish, where the Lord brings uh, a a storm upon the, the ship that they were in. Jonah ends up in the sea. He's certain for death, but the Lord saves him through this great fish that swallows him. Chapter 2 then is is Jonah rejoicing in God, his salvation. And at the end of chapter 2, he's thrown from the belly of the fish onto dry land. And that's where we pick up our story this morning. So look at Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And then then I will lead us in a prayer for the hearing and proclaiming of God's word. Jonah 3, starting in verse 1, and we'll go through chapter 4, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Your word is what saves. Your word is what brings joy to our hearts. Lord, we pray that as we hear it proclaimed this morning, that you, through your spirit, would illuminate our hearts to understand your word, that we might have joy, and in that joy, proclaim. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I often feel like a lousy and unfaithful evangelist. And I say that not with sarcasm or, or being facetious or kind of, kind of over-exaggerating for, for, for effect. No, I often feel like a lousy and unfaithful evangelist. Probably not what you expected to hear when you came this morning for a sermon on evangelism. But I can think of many times in my life having this feeling, and one recently stands out in an opportunity that I had with a, a neighbor. Tori and I have lived in our current house for three years plus now. Slowly but surely, we've been working to build relationships with our neighbors, hoping to have opportunities to, to proclaim the good news, but ultimately just to love them and care for them. Well, recently, my, my neighbor has, has asked me a bit more about our meetings, kind of on his own initiative. He's, he's uh, sought these conversations out, and, and while it wouldn't have been easy, I didn't even try to work my way towards gospel conversations. Instead, often in those conversations, I would, I would feel rushed because I had something more important, something that I needed to get to, or, or I felt scared of, of not knowing how to get to that next level and, and, and get to the gospel, and so I remained silent. And kind of, this happened a few times, and in that last time after that, I, I felt so discouraged, like such a poor, lousy, and unfaithful evangelist. I wonder if you could tell a story like that. If you've ever felt discouraged, like a lousy and unfaithful evangelist. I start with that story this morning because I want to begin with the truth that you and I were not alone. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we read, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And so my goal this morning is to speak to us. To speak to those who feel like lousy and unfaithful evangelists. Maybe you have felt that way recently, 
Or maybe you're going to feel that way soon, or maybe you feel that way right now. What hope do we have? Well, we have hope in our God. Well, just so that we're on the same page this morning, when when we say evangelism, this is what we mean. This is what I mean. It's the, the proclamation of the good news of the gospel with the aim to persuade to faith. So when I say evangelism, that's what I'm talking about. It's the proclamation of the good news with the aim to persuade to faith. And the gospel is that message that God is holy and sinless, that we are unholy and sinners, deserving of God's perfect justice. But God sent Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross, bearing God's wrath, rose again on the third day, so that all who turn to him will receive eternal life. And every Christian is called to be an evangelist, to to be one who brings that good news to the lost. Yet so many of us struggle to do that day after day. I think for one reason or another, it's because we are discouraged. So that brings us to our main idea this morning. When you feel like a lousy evangelist, hope in the Lord. It's pretty simple, but I'll say it again. When you feel like a lousy evangelist, hope in the Lord. Perhaps you feel lousy in your evangelism because the moment you get opportunities to speak about the good news, you get awkward or kind of that that long pause of silence. Perhaps you feel lousy because you fear losing a friend or your job and so you remain silent. Perhaps you feel lousy because you, you don't feel confident in your ability to communicate these wonderful truths that we've been given. But whatever it is that, that makes you feel lousy, our, our goal this morning is to encourage you that when you feel like a lousy evangelist, hope in the Lord. And so this morning, I want us to consider really six hopes that we have in God when we feel like lousy evangelists from the book of Jonah. Because in the book of Jonah, I think we may find the, the greatest example of a lousy evangelist. Hopefully you picked that up in our scripture reading this morning. But rather than giving you all six hopes at once, we're going to just start with the first hope and then we'll work our way through. So first point there in Jonah 1.1, our first point, hope in the Lord who calls us to go. Hope in the Lord who calls us to go. This is our, our first hope this morning. Jonah 1 begins with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. You can see that in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So Jonah is the the son of Amittai. We we see that he is a prophet to the the northern kingdom of God's people, Israel. The only other time we see Jonah in Scripture is in 2 Kings 14.25, where you see the Lord speaking through Jonah to, to Jeroboam, one of the kings in Israel before they're exiled. And here in Jonah 1, he receives this word from the Lord, but that that word is actually not to to go to Israel, but it's to go to Nineveh. We're told Nineveh is this great city with lots of evil for which God will judge them. Nineveh is not an Israelite nation. This is not kind of normal for, for the prophets. In fact, it's not only not an Israelite nation, but Nineveh was one of Israel's greatest enemies. If you want a better picture of the evil of Nineveh, I could encourage you to go to the the minor prophet Nahum. But Jonah receives this word, and what we would expect is for Jonah to get up and go. 
But instead we read this in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So instead of going to Nineveh, we see Jonah arise but to flee, to flee to Tarshish. And did you notice the, the repeated phrase there twice in verse 3? That in his fleeing to Tarshish, what is Jonah really doing? He's fleeing the presence of the Lord. This phrase helps us feel the, the full weight of what, what's happening here. Jonah is acting in total and complete disregard for God and for what he commands. God has told him to go, but Jonah, a prophet whose very job is to, to, to take the God's word and tell it to others, is rebelling against the Lord's command. Well, friends, the, the command that Jonah receives here to arise, get up, and go to a lost nation and tell them of God's judgment and his salvation is a very similar command that you and I have received as Christians in the New Covenant. We see this, this commission to Christians in Matthew 28, where Jesus says he has all authority and then tells us to go, starting in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, as those who follow Jesus, we have the same command as Jonah, in a sense. We are called to go to all nations, making disciples of them. So not just to the one nation, but to all the nations. Jonah was called to get up and go to a different city and pursue the lost. And we too, brothers and sisters, are called to get up and go and pursue the lost. To not wait for lost people to come to us, but to go after them, to pursue them. I wonder if you feel like Jonah, fleeing from that responsibility. In what ways are you attempting to pursue the lost? Are you putting yourselves in position to, to come into contact with those who don't know Jesus Christ? Are you expecting others to do that? The church staff or those who are more extroverted? Friends, each of us are given the responsibility to arise, to get up and go to make disciples. But we notice something else, that with the Lord's call comes the Lord's presence. See, the call to go in evangelism comes with the promise of God's presence. We saw that in Matthew 28. Jesus ends his command to go with the promise, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jonah seeks to flee the Lord's presence as he disobeys God's command. So if to disobey God is to flee God's presence, when we obey God, we're actually walking in his presence. The call to go in evangelism comes with the promise of God's presence. He who calls us goes with us. What comfort for those who are fearful evangelists. We need not fear because we don't actually go on our own. But with the promise of God's presence. What comfort for us when we feel lousy in our evangelism because we go not in our own power, but with the power of the Lord who is present with us. Hope in the Lord who calls us to go. 
That's our first hope. The second hope that we have in the book of Jonah is to hope in the Lord who providentially rules the world. Hope in the Lord who providentially rules the world. While Jonah tries to flee, ultimately the Lord does not let him. In fact, we see verse 4 that the Lord acts providentially to direct Jonah where he ought to go. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1 in Jonah. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Friends, this act of of hurling wind is God's judgment upon Jonah for his act of disobedience, his attempts to, to flee the presence of the Lord. But in this act of judgment, we're actually reminded something about our God. That in his providence, he is able to direct the seas and the wind by his very word to bring about what he desires. And this is a theme that we see throughout chapter 1. I'd encourage you to to read through chapter 1 and see all the examples of God's providence. But let me highlight just two of them for you. In verse 7, we read of the, the sailors that they say to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and and the lot ends up falling on Jonah. But Proverbs 16.33 tells us, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It is by His providence that the, the lots fall on Jonah at that moment, so that he is forced to confess his sin. Another example of God's providence is seen in verse 17, where we read this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord appointed this great fish. This is not just poetic language. No, this is God's hands-on involvement in our world. His hands-on providence in His creation. And here, it's particularly his providence in verse 17 to save. That's where his salvation comes from. Jonah is in the the waters of God's judgment and God saves him, delivers him by appointing through his providence, appointing this great fish to swallow him. God is hands-on, providentially working in our world. Well, what is God's providence? This is as we've defined it as a church. In our paragraph number four of our Confession of Faith, we we see this. We believe that God from eternity ordains all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. Yet so as not in any way to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the agency, responsibility, or culpability of intelligent creatures. Lots of big words there. But God's providence is His upholding, directing, and governing all creatures and events from the greatest to the least by His perfect knowledge to the praise of His glory. Even in salvation. Now some will hear of God's providence and say, well, if God has already ordained all these things and He's going to bring them about, why is evangelism even necessary? They see it as an obstacle or a reason not to pursue evangelism. But I want to argue that God's providence is actually one of our greatest hopes in evangelism. Hear how one theologian highlights God's providence as a hope instead of a problem. 
He writes, The unthoughtable providence of God is not a problem for evangelism and missions. It is their only hope of success. The obstacles to missions around the world today are insurmountable, but for one thing, the providence of God is unstoppable. It cannot be stopped by closed countries. It cannot be stopped by hostile religions. It cannot be stopped by difficult languages and cultures. We may and we must build our lives and our mission on this confidence. Friends, the providence of God is our very confidence because it is unstoppable. So go and make disciples because God will go with you and His providence will will be unstoppable. God's providence is not a problem. It is our greatest hope. Well, maybe you're here this morning and you feel like a, a lousy, discouraged evangelist because you feel like your situation in life right now is really limiting your opportunities to, to, to tell others, non-Christians, about Jesus. Maybe you're an older saint this morning. And for so many years, you had wonderful and amazing opportunities to tell people about Jesus. You went to work, you had relationships with your neighbors, but now as your body grows weaker and you deal with sickness more often, you're discouraged because your opportunities seem to have evaporated. Or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or a work-from-home mom. And before you had children, you were able to pursue the lost in, in so many unique and exciting ways. But now you just feel thankful to get a shower. Nonetheless, try to pursue the lost. God's providence ought to be an encouragement for for those two groups and everyone in between. His purposes cannot be stopped by our age, by our life circumstances, by our health. If God can appoint a great fish to swallow a man in the middle of the ocean, can he not direct the circumstances of your life? God's providence cannot be stopped. So hope in it. If you feel limited by your situation this week, let me encourage you to ask yourself these questions. Where has God providentially stuck you? What opportunities in the world do you have? What sinners are around you in your normal day-to-day life? Maybe it's your neighbor's. Maybe it's doctors and nurses. Maybe it's your waitress at your your favorite restaurant that you go to every week. Or maybe it's your kids or families at, at the school. Whatever it is, do you trust God's providence has not taken the day or the week or the year off? That you are where you are because God has providentially ordained you to be there at this moment. And particularly when it, when it comes to parents or grandparents, I want to encourage you to think of, of Timothy. How did he receive the faith? Paul says this in, in 2 Timothy 1.5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Moms, dads, grandmas, and grandpas, you are on the front lines of evangelism. It may not feel it, But you are. The the primary way God continues to preserve His church is through the salvation of, of, of children. So hope in the Lord who has providentially stuck you where you are. So we can hope in the Lord who providentially rules the world. Our third hope is we can hope in the Lord who owns salvation. 
hope in the Lord who owns salvation. Jonah 2 is a a wonderful chapter. We're going to read just the first six verses here. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The, ra- the weeds wrapped around about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. The Lord delivered Jonah from the, the waters of his judgment through the, the appointing of that great fish where he spends three days and three nights. And having been delivered, note what Jonah does. He, he doesn't just rush through and say, okay, okay, Lord, thank you for the second chance. I'll do better next time. He doesn't respond to God's deliverance with duty. How does he respond? He meditates on God's good salvation of him. And his meditation pinnacles in verse 9. But I, with voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. To whom does salvation belong? To the Lord. Not to us. Not to our works. The Lord is our only hope for salvation and eternal life. Have you felt that that pang of grief recently when you didn't share the gospel in an opportunity? That sorrow for for failing one more time? Some evangelist or, or some Christian, you might say? Often this discouragement comes because we've put our hope for righteousness in our duty and not in Jesus. Friends, a perfect track record in evangelism will not save you. Jesus will. The Lord owns salvation and He freely gives the salvation to those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. So the next time you feel that pang of guilt, rejoice that God has brought that conviction. For godly grief is often meant to lead us to repentance. Then repent, put your hope in Jesus Christ, and keep on moving forward. The hope we have is the hope we proclaim God owns and freely gives salvation to sinners. God owns and freely gives salvation to sinners. So rather than trying to motivate your evangelism by duty or by guilt, we ought to try motivating our evangelism by remembering God's salvation and the joy that that brought. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul encourages the church in Corinth to remember that, that it is the love of Christ that controls us, that motivates our reconciliation ministry. Another way of saying it is we love because he first loved us. Christian, don't forget the gospel when trying to proclaim the gospel. I'll say that again. Don't forget the gospel when trying to proclaim the gospel. It's actually remembering Jesus' work on our behalf that will rightly and more fully motivate your evangelism. One author says it this way. Our power in drawing men to Christ springs chiefly from the fullness of our personal joy in Him and the nearness of our personal communion 
with him. So what are ways that we cultivate evangelism in our life? We actually can cultivate our communion with our God. So let me give you two ways to cultivate your communion with God this week. First, meditate on the gospel. Meditate on the gospel. Don't, don't rush past the message of God's salvation. Here, here Jonah actually sets us a good example. It's, it's one of the few good examples Jonah sets us. But he meditates. He spends what we have as, as nine verses meditating on the gospel of God, on his salvation of him. And note, he's going to, just to skip ahead a little bit, he's actually going to go and, and, and do what God told, told him to do. I think that starts with his meditation on the gospel. So friends, be in your word. Sing songs like we've sung this morning. All I have is Christ. Meditate on the gospel. Secondly, make gathering with God's people a priority. We can cultivate our communion with God as we cultivate communion with God's people. As we have relationships with others, they can encourage us, spur us on, help us remember the gospel, and spur us to to tell others about it. Friends, the Lord owns salvation. You don't own it. It is owned by God, so rest in that. But I think this this hope of of the Lord owning salvation actually speaks to a, a second discouragement. At times we can be discouraged because we aren't seeing results. So maybe you're a parent of an older child who's not a Christian. Maybe you have a parent or a sibling who you've been trying to share the gospel with to to no seeming avail. We can often become discouraged evangelists because we don't see the results that we long to see. But here we're forgetting the truth that we learn in Jonah 2.9. To the Lord belongs salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So, so put your hope in God's sovereign owning of that salvation. And really, remember your job. Your job is to deliver the good news, not to make others accept the good news. A common illustration used to describe this is that we as Christians are like mailmen. What do mailmen do? They deliver the news. Does a mailman fail if when you get that news or that, that, or that, that, uh, that letter or that bill or that summons to jury duty and you feel angry and you don't want to accept it, is that the mailman's fault? Did he fail? No, he was faithful to his job. He delivered the news. So friends, you and I, if we're faithfully and joyfully telling others about the news, we are being faithful. We can take We can take hope that our job is not to save sinners. And we can entrust to God that which already belongs to him. The salvation of sinners. Hope in the Lord who owns salvation. Our fourth hope. Hope in the Lord who gives second chances to lousy evangelists. Hope in the Lord who gives second chances to lousy evangelists. Look at Jonah 3, chapter, uh, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Did you see it? The word comes to Jonah a second time. We might expect God at this point to, to give up on Jonah, to scold him, 
To even maybe remove the title of prophet and say, you're not worthy. But instead, the word of the Lord comes a second time. As the VeggieTales song says, our God is a God of second chances. I know many of you were singing that in your head. And note that in God's second chance, the call is, is very similar to God's first call. You can you, I'll, I'll point it out. Arise, that's the same word. Go to Nineveh, same phrase. That great city, same phrase. And call out against it, same phrase. The message that I tell you. Jonah's word comes as it, or the Lord's word comes as it did the first time to Jonah. I wonder how many of you would love a second opportunity to share the gospel with a friend or a family member or a co-worker. Well, friends, we serve a God who often, though not always, who often gives second chances. Sometimes it takes time, the, the rebuilding of relationships, but we serve a God who gives second chances. Amen? Amen. You know, so many of us get discouraged. We, we kind of take ourselves out of the game because we, we treat evangelism like a superpower. Either you have it or you don't. Right? So we'll, we'll, we'll try to share the gospel once and it, it doesn't go well. And then, we're, all right, well, I, I clearly don't have the gift. I don't have the power, so I'm going to just quit. We can be like a child who expects to be able to play Mozart on the piano and is ready to give up after practicing only two minutes. I practiced for years. I still can't play Mozart. But evangelism, friends, is not a superpower. It's a discipline. It's something that needs to be practiced again and again, built into our lives. It's a a skill to be developed by all, not merely a power given to a few. And our God gives many chances. And so, friends, as long as you and I are breathing, we have more chances to grow in our evangelism. So don't waste it. God is giving you and I more chances and we never know what he might do with those next chances. And that actually leads us right into our fifth hope. Hope in the Lord who uses lousy evangelists. Hope in the Lord who uses lousy evangelists. Well, having been given this second hope, we see Jonah go into Nineveh. That's what we see there in verse 3. He goes into Nineveh. He proclaims the message going about a day's journey in what is about a a three-day wide city. It would have taken him about three days to walk the entire city. And about a day's in, what we begin to see is God's salvation spreads. But know all that were given of Jonah's message. Look, look at what it says in verse 4. This is Jonah's message. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. It's short, sweet, to the point. Probably not all that he said, but it's all that we have recorded for us. He's not eloquent. He's just declaring the simple truth that God's judgment will come if they don't repent. And then Jonah kind of slides out of the story. So in in verses 5 through 10 of chapter 3, we don't see anything really from Jonah. But then we we pick him back up in in chapter 4, verse 1, and we read this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Or 
Some, it might read in your translation, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah and he was angry. Why did Jonah think it to be evil? Why was he angry? Because he knew God would save them. He knew God would relent of his disaster. Talk about a lousy evangelist. He didn't want to proclaim the message because he didn't want them to be delivered. Friends, this is a call for ourselves to examine our own lives. Are there some whom we're not sharing the gospel with because we don't actually want to see them be saved? So Jonah is not only a, an uneloquent uh, evangelist, but we see that Jonah is actually a reluctant evangelist. You can imagine if this is his attitude after they repent, what, what was his attitude before? What was, how was he proclaiming that message? But what happens in chapter 3? Even though Jonah is not eloquent and is reluctant, we look at verse 5 of chapter 3. And the people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh repent. They turn from their sin and they look to God and and it reaches the king who humbles himself in in a, a, a mighty way. He gets up from his throne, he takes off his robe, he puts on sackcloth and sits in the ashes. This is a picture of repentance. So the king has done this and he he calls for repentance to be a mark of the whole land. I think he's calling even for the beasts, the, the animals, not to eat anything. The people of Nineveh repent. And God sees this repentance and relents from the disaster. Brothers and sisters, God delights to use that which is weak and foolish in the world to save sinners. This is what we see at the cross. God, who is perfect in holiness, saving sinners who are totally unrighteous, using that which seems foolish. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, crucified. Jesus lived a a perfect life. He he did not deserve God's judgment, yet he willingly went to the cross where he bore God's wrath, forsaken by the Father. But just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day. And so everyone who turns from their sin and to faith in Jesus Christ will be forgiven. Hear what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 about the, the foolishness of the cross. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I wonder if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Does this message seem like folly to you? That an almighty, all-holy God would send His Son, who did not deserve to die, but dies on the cross as the only way for which men to be saved? Let me call you to hear it for what it truly is. It is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, which is the power of God to save. Believe in Jesus and turn from your sin. And there's an urgency to this message, right? Jonah says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now God tells us that we're not promised another breath. 
It's not a promise of 40 days. It's barely the promise of 40 milliseconds. Do not wait. Turn like Nineveh from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. See it not as folly, but as the wisdom of God. If that's you and you'd like to talk more about this, I'll be in the foyer after the service. You can come find me or you can talk to anyone, maybe the person you came with or the person around you. God delights in using weak things so that he gets more glory. And Christians... This is not just an encouragement to non-Christians. This is actually the the encouragement for us. The hope for us. God delights in using weak things so that he gets more glory. Jonah's weakness did not stop God from saving sinners. He was a lousy evangelist. He was a, a mouthpiece and a lousy mouthpiece at that. But God is the one who is believed. And God is the one who relents. And God is the one who can grant this kind of repentance that we see in Nineveh. I think what we see happening here in Jonah is what we're, we're told of just in a few verses after 1 Corinthians 1.18 and in 1 Corinthians 2 verses 1-5. through 5. Let me read that for us. Paul's telling of, of kind of his coming to Corinth and he says, And I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I wonder if you've ever shared the gospel and felt like Paul did there. That you came in weakness and fear in much trembling, your, your message didn't make much sense. It was discombobulated. It was all over the place. Friends, God tells us that this is how he saves sinners. So that the, the, the power, so that their, their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. God delights in using weak and lousy evangelists. And friends, this is our hope. This is the hope for those who feel like they're not good evangelists. Friends, we're not all Billy Grahams. In fact, most of us aren't. But we have hope. God delights in using weak things so that he gets more glory. Do you believe that God can use you even in the midst of your weakness? Isaac Adams, in in this short book, says it this way. Sometimes we don't evangelize because we simply don't believe in God. We don't believe He'll save. We don't believe His Word has power. But if God can speak through a reluctant prophet like Jonah... If he can speak through a a stuttering shepherd in Egypt like Moses... And if he can speak through a donkey... He can make his appeal through you. Friends, God uses lousy evangelists. How might God be using you? Well, our final hope comes from the the final chapter of Jonah 4, of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. And that hope is to take hope in the Lord who is compassionate to lousy evangelists. 
Take hope in the Lord, who is compassionate to lousy evangelists. You know, I, I don't know exactly how Jonah walks out of the city, but I imagine him, he was like a fussy child. Walking out of the city, storming to a seat, waiting to see what God will do. Sun beating down on him. It's like a day at the beach, but far worse. And in the middle of that desert, God in his sovereign providence appoints a plant to grow to give Jonah some shade. So we see in verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and it made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head. Why? To save him from his discomfort. To save him from his evil. This could be another translation. Here's Jonah, angry with God, running from God, who even being saved miraculously still reluctantly goes and and gives an uneloquent message. Angry, fussy, yet God is compassionate towards Jonah. He pulls up this plant to save him from his evil from his discomfort. Ultimately, God takes away the plant. He does this to highlight Jonah's lack of compassion, but God's great compassion for sinners. We see that in, in, in the, the final question of Jonah, chapter 4, verse 11, where God asks, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Friends, God's compassion towards sinners is greater than our sin. God shows pity to sinners. This is great hope for us, friends. Maybe you are a lousy evangelist. Turn and know God's compassion. His compassion is not limited by your obedience. His compassion is not dependent on your obedience. Christian, in just a moment, will come to the the Lord's table where we remember that God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us. And Romans 8.32 tells us that in that truth, we can be sure He will graciously and compassionately give us all that we need. So friends, take hope today in the Lord who calls us to go. Take hope today in the Lord who providentially rules the world. Take hope today in the Lord who owns salvation. Take hope today in the Lord who gives second chances to lousy evangelists. Take hope today in the Lord who delights to use lousy evangelists. Take hope today in the Lord who is compassionate to lousy evangelists. And when you feel like a lousy evangelist this week, Hope in the Lord and go make disciples. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of your compassion. It is so undeserved. Yet, Lord, you promise to be our mighty fortress, our refuge. 
You promise victory for your church. So Lord, give us hope today. Give us the hope of your salvation. Give us the joy of meditating on how the gospel has worked in our own lives. Lord, give us the hope that you delight to use weak things so that you get more glory. May your name be glorified as we go out this week. In Jesus' name, amen.